You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. and welcome to episode 188 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. I hope you're all doing well. For this episode, I headed off to Suffolk to speak to the author of Rooted Stories of Life, Land and a Farming Revolution, Sarah Langford. Sarah's journey into farming has been made famous through the publication of the book, which was published in hardback form last July and will be out in paperback form later this week on the 2nd of March. Sarah's own roots are based in rural Hampshire, but she chose a life in the law before recently returning to explore her farming heritage, albeit this time in Suffolk. She studied English at university before training as a barrister and working for 10 years in criminal and family law in London and around the UK. She left the bar on maternity leave to have her two sons and in 2017 moved to Suffolk and together with her husband took on the management of his family's farm. As well as Rooted, she is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, In Your Defence, Stories of Life and Law. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you my chat with Sarah Langford. Sarah, welcome to Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming here. It's really nice to do this in person and not on the dreaded Zoom. Yeah, that no, really is. We last saw each other in Oxford, yeah. which was, this is much calmer. <laughs> and it was, it was such an amazing few days though, wasn't it? It was. It was just the very it's a very energizing way to kick off the year isn't it it is it's a good way so let's kick straight in with the book actually because at the beginning of the book and this is my my first quote you write that farming is not just a job it's an identity yeah and this i think is quite key because i mean how do you perceive that within the industry but also i'm interested in you how do you perceive your identity Mm. right now and how that's changed oh great questions In terms of the farming industry, I think when you're outside it, when you're outside anything, it can help for you to see it quite clearly in a way that when you're in it, it's hard to see something clearly. And so whenever people would talk to me about farmers and their own preconceptions about it, what was missing from that was an understanding that the farmers that I grew up with and knew and have come to know entirely saw their life and work as one and the same. Yeah. Their communities were farming communities. Their partners were often involved in farming, if not directly, then indirectly in some capacity. Their kids, they wanted often to go into farming. It was so much more than how they earned money and how they spent their day. It was a sort of prism through which they saw themselves. And that, I think, has wonderful benefits to it but it also means it's ripe for exploitation because people who see themselves as part of their job won't necessarily properly price their value they just look at the money flowing in and out and that means that the government who've been paying for subsidies for a long time haven't factored that in either i think well i mean it's been going to the landowner not necessarily always the farmer so whilst it is a kind of romantic and incredible thing really to be so intermingled with how you spend your day 
that you are part of it and it is part of you. It does make, I think, it quite hard sometimes to say, these are my working hours and these are my off working hours because they're one and the same. And in terms of how I see my identity, I've never really known how to answer that because I've never been very good at just being one thing. Yeah. And I actually think that most people are like that, given the chance. But when we grew up, I mean, we're roughly kind of the same age. We were told that, you know, you have your you have your job and that kind of can sit on the sticky label that you wear when you go into the conference. You yeah. know, that is your identity. And uh, I for a long time, that was, I guess, barrister. But as you said, I did an English degree and I've always loved writing and reading and books mm. and words. And I loved being a criminal, a courtroom barrister because words are at its heart. You use stories to try and take the jury and the judge into the lives of your clients so that they can understand them better. And so that's always been a kind of thread that's run through my life. And I think, you know, I earn my money now by writing and also to manage the farm. Mm. So I'm not sure I can give you a nice clean answer to that. I suppose I would identify myself as a writer first and maybe a farm manager is part of that but it's something that I I want to I want to be more hands-on with the farm and that's certainly part of my long-term plan okay yeah I mean I think identity like you were saying actually for all of us is quite muddy yeah but the book is called rooted so let's stick with roots I think to start with and, <laughs> and I want to talk about your grandfather actually mm. um, and your grandparents because you describe your grandfather in the book as being quote an, an oak of a man six foot four inches tall with huge farmer's hands and a distrust of deodorant <laughs> and th- yeah. that is just one of, of many just wonderful uh, lines that go through the book but tell me about your grandparents and their influence on you I think it, it's hard to describe how impactful they were on me and my sisters actually at the time like everything you absorb it entirely without really having the benefit of reflection and I wish they were alive many times now so that I could ask them I think regularly what they would think of this strange life pivot that uh, I have taken but they took on their tenancy in Hampshire very shortly after the war ended but it was still in an environment of of hunger really people who had known what it was to be hungry and they took on an old school three generation tenancy and my grandfather inherited 15 men that came with the farm and it's 950 acres of kind of predominantly arable with woodland um, and a little bit of pasture too and my mum like many did back then had all three of us quite quickly and we were 15 minutes away from the farm so we spent kind of every spare moment that we had there because it was I mean for her it was another pair of hands but it also provided us with this kind of extraordinary privilege that you only recognize again when you get to know people who haven't had it which is exposure to the outside world when you're a child to the natural world when you're not watched, when you can go off for hours at a time and mess about in the hay bales and climb into the chicken hut and create kind of 
<laughs> clubs and yeah. just but, but also also create stories as oh, well yeah. i think this is this is something that uh, certainly for a lot of a lot of creative people i'm going to say who who i meet in this sort of world mm. that growing up in the farm space um growing up in the countryside making your own fun that create that creative element is a big part of childhood maybe it's just a necessity when you if you're by yourself in a in a garden or a field or whatever you have to kind of come up with your own fun you're right yeah. you're completely right you haven't got a playground or whatever it might be that you can occupy yourself with i mean my grant so that was a big part that was a huge part of it and as was food because my grandmother was a wartime cook her job as a farmer's wife was mostly about the production of food <laughs> and you know certainly when my mum was growing up they had the kind of sort of food diary if you like that almost every other farm would have had certainly in that part of the world which was rabbits game they had a big fruit garden my grandfather was an extraordinary kind of grower of every kind of berry that yeah. they grew in a fruit cage my grandmother was an incredible gardener she did it all herself and so they would they grew a lot of food themselves which they would then freeze or pickle or whatever it would be and so it was very kind of old school fair so there was always i remember one of those stoneware bowls full of lard in the fridge which would have been the with the dripping really off yeah. the off the meat large amounts of sugar on everything <laughs> i have very clear memories of baking with my grandmother and making kind of you know shortbread rock cake all of those kind of old school sweet biscuits in reflection and i i'm not sure that i understood this until i was an adult but they taught me a lot about what it felt like or what it looked like to be extraordinarily connected to your place because they absolutely were. Even though they hadn't grown up there, that's where they'd made their lives. Okay. And my grandmother had always said when she died, she wanted to be scattered not in the churchyard but on the farm because that was part of her and that was where she felt was where she belonged and what belonged to her. I think I entirely took that sense of place for granted and it's only later in your life that you have a yearning to recreate that yourself. And I know that the various cultures have a word for it. The one that I write about in Rooted is the Welsh version of it, which I'm going to mispronounce this, but I think it's Hireth. Um, and they it means a homesickness or a longing for home, but mm. not actually a home that it physically exists. Mm. It's like the idea of home, the idea of a, of a place where you where you are entirely at home. Mm. And I think a lot of us have that actually this kind of place in ourselves that is looking for that looking for that sense of feeling entirely rooted, mm. entirely yourself in your own in your own space. I've got some exciting news. After six years of doing this podcast, we actually have a sponsor, a primary sponsor, which will really help in lifting the voices of all the farmers that come on this show week in, week out to a wider audience. A-Plant Rural Insurance have come on board, which I'm thrilled about. I wanted to work with them mainly because I admire what their team are doing in terms of supporting farming voices, and I believe that together 
we can do far more to further raise the profile of farmers. They share farmers' content on a daily basis to their 115,000 strong Instagram followers. They do social media takeovers. They have a rural community blog sharing farmers' experiences. And they also support a lot of initiatives championing UK farmers, including now Meet the Farmers. So, yes, it's great to have A-Plan Rural Insurance on board. And I'm excited to see where we can go from here. So that idea of rural roots, the reason why I wanted to sort of start with that and, and, and delve into that as part of your being inside of your, part of your early influence was leading on to my next question, really, which is about the city, about the urban environment. Mm. Why were you so determined to embrace a city life? Because I was born in the 1980s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was born in the 1980s. <laughs> and what I absorbed was a very clear message. It was the Thatcher years. It was like, if you're going to, be anything then you go to the city and all of the films I've watched like Baby Boom and all of those classic 80s with full of tropes were all about making it big in the big lights yeah bright lights and so I had like a very clear image of kind of me in stilettos maybe with a briefcase some shoulder pads walking extremely fast down a pavement yeah <laughs> and I think I absorbed, I absolutely absorbed this kind of message that the people who were the most interesting, the most important, the most advanced and forward thinking, they were all in the town. They had the best ideas. And I I think that was kind of the message of the 80s. Mm, mm. And so that's where I absolutely set my sights on going. And I still think London is an incredible place, as are other kind of big cities, and has a lot to offer. But with every gain, there is a loss. And I think that that is true of most things. And talking of change again, we're sitting in mid-Suffolk. Yeah. Which is probably not, not a part of the world that you, you thought <laughs> no, that you would, no. you would come to now. But So tell us the story of how and why you came to Suffolk. Well, it was a, it was a complete accident. I was writing my first book. My kids were really small. My youngest son was eight months old and my other son was two and my husband whose job had meant that he was both in London and Suffolk so we had spent a lot of time in Suffolk and we'd be going back and forward for the duration of our relationship he lost his job in 2017 and we had managed to buy our first kind of family home in Suffolk about six months beforehand and it was uh, it was a wreck. It was a wreck in the truest terms, and that like there was a giant hole in every ceiling. You couldn't, you genuinely couldn't um, live in it. And so we thought, well, this is, the, you know, we'll just get out of London, just get out and go to the countryside as a kind of break, inverted commas, as a break from real life. Yeah. And of course, it turned out to be the beginning of discovering real life. Uh, so we ended up in a little kind of cottage, which was two fields away from where Ben grew up and the fields were owned by his parents and they had about 180 acres of arable which were quite nearby and we said well we're here we're like jobless I was finishing my book we had two very small kids who didn't have to be in school we were like well you know I mean the, uh, now the breathtaking arrogance of it all and the naivety is kind of astonishing but I guess like any big project if you know what you're taking on you don't do <laughs> you it never start. No. Yeah. so we were like well we'll do it we're, we're here why we'll manage it and then tripped and fell into this rabbit hole 
And I then understood, I mean, that was the link, I guess, back to re-looking at my childhood and all the connections that that brought with it. Yeah, because I mean, based on that again, and going back to this idea of connection Mm. and sense of place, how does Suffolk feel to you? Because other than Ben, you don't have any any of that that kind of connection um long-standing connections i suppose with it and this is something that i personally i've I th- it, whether it's become an obsession i don't know yeah. in, in recently but it's something that i've personally been exploring a lot and whether i was in the west or whether i'm in the east or wherever i am um to go off on a personal tangent but. no i think you're right i think that there is well i uh, kind of what i said earlier i think there's this part of us i think it's partly time of life thing yeah when you're not in your 20s anymore and going through your period of growth I guess in the same way but I think there's a part in all of us that wants to find the place that we feel is home yeah and all that so you write in the book um, in six short weeks the life I've been leading for so long has been upturned now I am standing in the garden of our new home wondering why I'm here (laughs) can you remember when you wrote that yeah well, I wrote it after it happened. I, yeah, but but, but 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 was was this based on a, a real? Oh moment? yeah, yeah. I I have a photograph. What I did actually was I started an Instagram account at the same time as it happened. Okay. And that, in a in a funny kind of way, I mean, social media has lots of demons, but it's very helpful as a memory jogger. Yeah. And I took a photograph of that moment, really. Because I was like, I feel, I can feel this tipping point. I can almost feel the ground shifting beneath me as this, as a life moves from one stage to another stage. I don't know why this is happening, <laughs> but I guess I just have to try and trust that there will be something in it for me and I have to see it and look for it. And of course there was, and I n- never, I never expected it, but it tied up so much of uh, my own past, I guess, and enabled me to reflect on the 10 years that I'd spent in the city in a different way, I think, to see all the things that were lacking in it that I hadn't necessarily been honed into in the same way. You know, the, as I said, London's got a lot of benefits, city's got a lot of benefits, but we don't, I don't think, mix outside our little groups, mm. despite, despite the huge diversity within the city which is not replicated in other parts of the country you tend to stick people tend to stick in their own groups and of course when you're in a village or the countryside you you have to mix with people who are both politically different to you socially age-wise you have to learn to rub along together we all know what village life is like mm-hmm. it's like rampant <laughs> gossip <laughs> everyone talks about each other you and you have to kind of lean into it a bit you have to accept it for what it is and and find something which I think is just lacking generally in discourse, which is tolerance, understanding, connection. Just a quick shout out about Open Farm Sunday this year, which is on Sunday the 11th of June. Leave are holding a number of regional Open Farm Sunday breakfast meetings. So if you're a farmer and you're interested in taking part in Open Farm Sunday this year, you can head along to one of those to find out more from Annabelle and her team of ambassadors. The topics covered in these sessions will include managing visitor numbers, ideas for activities and how to ensure visitors 
remain safe on the farm and for any scottish listeners amongst you rebecca dawes who is the regional ambassador and event coordinator for scotland will be hosting an evening meeting serving pies in perth it's worth it just for that i think at 6 p.m on the 7th of march you can also join that meeting online though rebecca is encouraging those who can to come in person to get the most out of it to register for one of the breakfast meetings just visit farmsunday.org go to the open my farm section and then click where it says lofs host farmer meeting so that's farmsunday.org and i know that annabelle and the leaf team would love to see lots more people signed up what's your perception of how the story generally has gone down in the urban audience, because uh, actually a lot of this brings back memories of talking with Anna Jones, actually, about mm. a, a book that she wrote yep. about this sort of rural-urban divide, divide, the way that rural stories are told. And this is this is a big passion of mine as well, but it's how rural stories are told in an urban setting. Mm. Um, and similarly, the whole why care, why should we care Absolutely. element, which is big. And it, it's, yeah. it's I think it's something that is worth talking about but what's your perception of how it's gone down i suppose in a rural setting and an urban setting i've mostly wrote this book for people who live in urban areas and i was therefore aware that i had to write it in a way that meant that they did care about it they were invested in it that it was relevant to their life and the way i did that was i suppose firstly to make it a good story to put the human beings in it and to make it emotional so that they care about it just on that level as a fellow human being. And the second way I tried to do it was to show them not only that the food side is important, but that the way that we look after our land touches us even in ways that we may not be aware of every single day because it's not only about the food on our plate, it's also about our clean air, our clean water, the way that our history is preserved, the way that our tourists, which is, and we can be snooty about it, but it's a huge chunk of income into our small island, but also in this growing space of mental and physical health, the green spaces that we have have a proven scientific effect on our mental well-being and access to green space is critical and so i wanted to reach the urban audience by saying these people who represent a tiny proportion of the working population just 1% but look after 70% of our land have the answers to so many of the problems that you and the city are concerned about that you're concerned about nutrition about mental and physical health, about how you fit in your place in the world, about community. They have the ability to teach you this. And there are also kind of, I think, multiple life lessons that I've learned whilst learning how to farm, particularly in a way which is reliant on natural systems. The idea of patience, of sitting on your hands, of not feeling like you mm. control everything, of understanding that every action has a consequence, even if you don't intend it, even if you can't see it. The idea of a ripple effect, which of course is very obvious in organic farming, that you kill off that insect and then you accidentally kill all your predatory insects, so you double your problem. Or, you know, you can pick multiple examples. There was a wonderful moment I had with a neighbouring organic farmer, which was another one of these. And we stood in front of our field, my field, and 
we had tried to do minimum cultivations, minimum tillage on uh, organic farm, which is tricky. And we had grown barley, but the oats that had been the crop before were incredibly competitive. And so we had a barley field that was awash with oats. (laughs) And I stood in front of it with him and I said, oh my God, I mean, all I can see is oats. And he went, isn't that funny? All I can see is barley. (laughs) And I... As soon as he said it, and I looked at the field differently, I could see he was right. There was lots of barley in there. It's a different way of looking at it. And if we apply that framework to our own lives, how we approach our life, where we focus only on the negative, or we look for the lesson in the failure, or we look for the positives of an outcome, it changes the way you approach life. Mm. So I think, you know, I'd spend a lot of time, and I've gone around the countryside talking to people who don't have huge social media accounts who don't have a microphone who don't have a public platform who aren't asked regularly what they think about how to live or our various political crises and they have wisdom which is very rarely respected or taken account of and so that's what I wanted to get across to an urban audience don't be fooled by the shininess whether it's new tech or the aggressive marketing banners in the tube. Don't be fooled by it because there are plenty of people out there who have wisdom which can help your life. So that, I think, has worked as in I get quite a lot of messages and I'm asked to talk to urban audiences, which I think is a great thing. I was terrified about the response in the rural audience because I thought that they would just think it a load of kind of slightly hippie nonsense and I also am very aware that I'm at the beginning of this farming journey which I hope I try to do in the book like I want to take people exactly as I did in my first book from my place of complete ignorance on a learning journey with me through the book so I, I hope I don't pretend to be anything other than I am which is someone at the beginning of this. But what has been astonishing to me genuinely is the number of messages I get from people who feel like it speaks to them and they're in a farming community. Whether it's because they identify very much with my grandparents, they're a bit older and they recognise that. Whether it's because they've been in their own journey of wondering whether the way that they're farming really is the way they want to do it. It has been both a massive relief and really kind of humbling actually to get messages um, from people who say that. The farmers that you select to profile um, in the book, because I mean, there are a lot of farmers out there as we know. Yeah. How and why did you select the the ones that you did end up profiling? Well, a lot of, as I just said, the most, one of the most important things was that they, they didn't have a big profile. Yeah. With the exception of one chapter, I suppose, his profile has grown since I've spoken to them. But when I met them, that wasn't necessarily the case. But I wanted them to be completely, to represent somebody who was just a normal farmer. I mean, there's no such thing. But <laughs> I, I didn't want any celebrity farmers in there. I didn't want anyone with a trust fund. I didn't want anyone who was doing this because they 
um, had another income source that meant that they could, which is kind of our farm, like we are not financially dependent on our farm. So we can afford to experiment in the way that we can. I didn't want anyone like that. We were like, we were the ones representing that in a way. I mean, we has, it has to pay for itself. It can't lose money, but I'm not, I'm not feeding my kids on the money from, that we make mm. from it. Everyone else had to, definitely. So I found them through loads of different ways, loads of different ways. I asked loads of people. I spoke to hundreds of people <laughs> who aren't in the book. I wrote, in fact, I had entire chapters cut out because one chapter I was very sad about, who's an uh, Arable friend of mine down in Wiltshire, who's on like grade one. I would have loved him to be on it. Grade one large scale very productive highly productive arable but it was cut because my editor thought it was too farmery uh, that was that was one of my questions actually, but yeah. <laughs> so uh it was just it was a very you know it was hard work it was hard work but i just talked to everybody i could and luckily i've got you know because i've got farming connections on both sides of our family you know i was able to speak to people and they put me in touch with people they put me in touch with people and it was just kind of phone calls and phone calls it was difficult because it was around covid but I took the view that this was my work and I therefore had my little letter from Penguin saying, yes, she's travelling for work. And I did my uh, COVID test and I set off because I don't think that you can be an in-person conversation. And I had to see the farm in order to be able to describe it. Absolutely. I had to I had to look at it and I had to go inside people's houses. And I mean, it was astonishing how open people were. They showed me their accounts books and photographs and old home videos i find it incredible how open people are (laughs) well i i think often maybe they feel like they aren't represented properly yeah they aren't given the chance to have that and so everyone i wrote about obviously read what i had written and signed it off if they wanted any changes made i had made changes um, you have to be sensitive to the fact that people exist in communities and, you know, you're putting something down in print and mm. so you don't want to rock too many boats, but you also want to get to the heart of the truth of their story. I hope that that was achieved. Did the way that you perceive farming, this is a big question. <laughs> Hit did, me. Did the way that you perceive farming alter through going through that process? of research yeah and if so how the research really took place over two and a half years I think the biggest change for me is that at the beginning I knew that I had a natural kind of leaning towards organic farming, towards not using chemicals. I knew that I held already loads of prejudices against that. And in a way, like I really wanted those prejudices to be met. I wanted to be told I was wrong about a lot of them. Okay. Because it seemed too simplistic just to say all chemicals are bad. Like it's all bad. The biggest change over the course was realising how many farmers I met that also had concerns about it. Even if they were using it, plenty of farmers I met said things to me like they wouldn't let us use it if it wasn't safe. I think in the period of time in which I was writing it, the sands shifted everywhere. Mm. I was really worried about the term regenerative farming uh, well, organic was always niche and is still niche, but the term organic regenerative farming being something which would really inflame farmers and was just dismissed as kind of 
really marginal. Now we're in a place where it's basically government policy. We're in a place where you've got the Farmers Weekly, which I think is a really good litmus test, writing regularly about it. You've got mob grazing in Farmers Weekly. You've got stuff that I was seeing on farms and wor- was worried about writing because I thought everyone's just going to say this is like not re- this is not representative. It's really niche. Now it is the direction of travel for the majority of forward-thinking farms. I mean, and linked into that as well, because at the end of the book, let's move on to that, you write of the benefits of connecting food and health and environment and community, this sort of holistic view. This, this comes in your sort of roundup at the end, with food being at the root mm. of health, mm. of community, mm. of the environment. I think there's an awareness of that, but do we just not want to accept it? I think... We are uh, a very adaptive, survivable species. That's why we're that's why we're still here. And the way we do that is to take the path of least resistance. You know, we don't we make our lives easy for ourselves. That's why we're still here. And our food is not priced to show its true cost: environmental cost, human cost, our health cost. But we all know, whether it's Jamie Oliver's chicken programme, Henry Dimbleby, when it comes to crunch and people are standing in the supermarkets, price wins. Mm. And it's no different from doctors smoking cigarettes. We know that just knowing about something is not enough to change our behaviour. We're going to change how we live when the price makes us change. I don't think that you can convince people to change just on information. Look at the ban on plastic bags. We knew plastic was bad. We've known for a very long time that cheap plastic bags were clogging our rivers, washing up on beaches. Like We've all seen the pictures of it. It still took the law yeah. to stop us. Well, it still took the law to make us take take our own bag, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, and, and that should be such a simple behaviour change. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a massive mindset shift. It was a massive mindset shift. I saw an old clip. I saw a clip the other day. It's very funny. Of the first time they brought in, first time they made drink driving illegal in America, and there were various people interviewed and they're like we're going to turn into a communist country if you can't have a couple of tins in the car on the way home from work what is the world coming to (laughs) if you can't drive said the mum with her baby in the car seat next to her if I can't have like a a can on my way back you know after a hard day (laughs) after the kids we're all doomed (laughs) we're all doomed And we, not only do we not accept drink driving as an absolute necessity now, we police each other, this mm. generation anyway, police each other in a way that that didn't happen in my parents' generation. Like, mm. It was generally disapproved of to get drunk and drive home. Mm. And that shows you how a legal change tipped into a cultural change. All I've got at my disposal is narrative. I can do my bit with the narrative and I can try and pull people in with emotional stories to make them walk in someone else's shoes for a bit and really think about the consequences of their choices. It's not going to be enough. 
for the kind of change that we need to see in the time frame that we need to see, there has to be a legal framework. There has to be a polluter pays principle. There has to be a distribution of who is rewarded, not the landowner, but the person farming it. There has to be a shift in how we buy our food. And it's not just going to be stories like the ones I've written. It's not going to be enough as much as I wish that wasn't the case. Just a little more about our primary sponsor, Aplan Rural. They provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. So for more information, visit aplan.co.uk forward slash rural. That's aplan.co.uk forward slash rural. Yeah, so he's just pulling out. He's pulling out what's left after the frost, basically. Which will be plenty of weeds. <laughs> plenty of weeds, and but it's well. See what you think when you walk on it. We have had a really dry February, so that is going to be reflected. But it's held its moisture pretty well. So this is all winter bird food here. That's going to have to be replanted. But you can see it's huge. It runs all the way down to the bottom. And this bean field was really interesting. We had a terrible, terrible aphid outbreak, and where I where the the stalks were black like you couldn't actually there were so many aphids on it the stalks were black in any normal farm you would have sprayed them obviously yeah. or maybe it'd been too late to spray them to be so quite honest. A, yeah so what's the but there you sit on your hands a week later i came out it was covered in ladybirds i literally went out into the middle of the field and i have a photo of it i was like there's a ladybird there's a ladybird there's a ladybird and the aphids would be eaten i mean i think lots of farmers who do this have had that moment but it was the most obvious one to me I was like oh my god I mean it's not foolproof you're obviously going to get occasions where it doesn't work but it's worked it's worked creating the habitat for predatory insects alongside the field that you need them to be in we're having to experiment as we go we've done two kind of cover crop trials here of different bits different things in it that will act as a weed suppressant to an extent yeah but if you run your boot over it which is basically what the cultivator is doing, isn't yeah. it? You, you're just, yeah. you could just pull it out. It's really shallow so rooting. You, you barely need to go, yeah. Caught by the tractor in a minute. But I'll show you the wheat. You have to have the sort of personality and appetite for it. You're never going to be able to control anything. I find that quite hard. I quite like being able to say, yes, that's a nice, tidy, perfect outcome. But you never are going to get rid of all the weeds. How do you balance that with vision? Because I take it you have a general idea of what you want to achieve. and Well, I shouldn't probably say it on record because it will terrify him. <laughs> 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 it might terrify Richard too much. I think what I would like to achieve is to be able to grow something that has a local market. I think that's quite important to me. Okay. I mean, we're really early on in this journey, but I'd like to be able to experiment with all sorts of different types of cropping. We did do some under-sowing before. I'd like to try that. Um, I'd like to see if we can grow with a living mulch. Yep. I know innovative farmers have been doing lots of trials on that to see whether that is a, a remedy to how you keep on top of weeds. Late wheat, this went in in December. Did it? Yeah. But, I mean, we have got... There is black grass up there, so... I'm not saying it was a totally well thought out strategy, but it was <laughs> how we were able to do it. 
But it's all right. It's, it's all right. It's, it's very clean. It's, it's very clean. Good. Don't say it. Don't Sorry, no, it. I shouldn't say don't that. Don't it. No, it is. So this went in after a herbal lay, which is a really um, diverse mixed species. And we had sheep on it, so we have a flying flock. Are you going to trial either FYM or compost? Is that part of the plan at all? Potentially. We'll have to see. We didn't put any on at all on our wheat that we got off last year. But there will be legacy fertility in there from being conventional for so long. Uh, yes, definitely. It's very it's tricky with organic. You have to make sure that you know exactly where it's coming from. You have to have all the paperwork in place. It may be that the sheep who were up here grazing, that they did the same job. There's so many basically. factors to it, aren't there? Yeah, this no, is, it's, this really, is the thing. it's just why I find it, you know, it is, <laughs> it, this is an intellectual job. It really is. You have to understand so many different factors and you can't say, yes, if I do this, this and this, this will happen because who knows what, what might get chucked in, whether it's a drought or a flood or whatever. Yeah. But whilst, whilst also still trying to make it pay. <laughs> whilst also still trying to make it pay. I will say on that front, I mean, I fully recognise none of this is going to work unless the money is in the right place. And I have massive sympathy with the NFU saying, you know, what the government have promised has not, has lost. It's down to kind of, what is it, 2.9 million because of inflation. Like it's been slashed in real terms because of inflation. And that the money that the SFI is, is offering, I mean, to be honest, lowland arable farmers don't do too badly out of it. Half of the stuff, like cover cropping and so on, we would be doing anyway. Yeah. So we'd just get be paid for it. Upland farmers, I think, are completely shafted by it. Um, upland sheep farmers have, have got very little on the table for them. And the money at the moment isn't in the right place. I don't know what's going to happen with the private finance, natural capital. It's incredibly complicated. We haven't, I, we, we know quite a lot about it and we haven't signed up to it, which says a lot. It still feels quite unknowable at the moment. The government are responsible for that because they haven't come up with, they haven't done the carbon code quick enough. There could be potentially so much money coming onto farms. There are so many people who have a financial benefit, who can receive a financial benefit from farmers changing the way they farm. It's connecting it that's proving the real challenge. It's connecting that money into farmers' pockets. I think it's there. It needs to find a way of finding its way in. You said when we were inside, um, you mentioned, when, I think it's our original question actually about identity. Yeah. Do you feel like a farmer? Oh, I don't know if I do, no. But then do you know what? My friend who's been doing it for eight years, who's <laughs> been doing it on his dad's, you know, large scale arable farm, like, I don't really feel like a farmer. He's like, no, come on. <laughs> so I don't know. But then, you know, I've written two books, one of which is a Sunday Times bestseller, and sometimes I don't feel like a writer. Yep. I think it's sometimes hard to claim it. And I, I've got to put my time into this. I know it. I'm at the beginning of this. I need to do a good 10 years because before I can even really properly it's a learning process. claim that. Yeah. 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 Life is a learning process. Yeah. So what makes it interesting? Yeah. We're going to start to round things up. Uh, so we'll do the, the final two questions. Sarah Langford, what is your message for the public? Uh, the message I think I would like people to get, and it isn't necessarily the one that you would expect, I suppose, which is to look up. I know this sounds odd, but someone told it to me a couple of years ago. And when you look up, you notice stuff outside of your own world. And it could be a tree, a bird, a building in the city. It makes you remember 
that the world is not just about you and your own story. It makes you remember all the other connections that you have with other elements in the world, other things in the world. And I think that is the thing that is going to make us change, is realising that we're connected to everything else, realising that our choices have consequences to everything else. And so I don't think people listen to slogans that much anymore. I mean, maybe we never did. But telling people to kind of eat seasonally or eat local or we all know that and we can see demonstrated that we know don't do it. Mm -hmm. But if we just looked up and realised that we are on this kind of extraordinarily beautiful but very fragile planet and we have a responsibility to it, maybe we will begin to re-establish those connections to it. I like that. And your message to farmers? Keep on trucking. (laughs) (laughs) I think farmers are the only industry that cannot just reduce its emissions but absorb it. I think farmers have answers to many of the problems that our world is facing at the moment. I think they have answers that go beyond the making of food. The connection that farmers have both to the land and to their communities is something that we can all learn from. They have, all of them, a story to tell. They are telling it. The social media has been really important at that. But to keep on going through this period of huge turbulence and change and um, to keep sending their message out to the public. Sarah, thank you for coming on Meet the Farmers. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it for today. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That just helps other people to know that we exist. Thanks again to Sarah for today and to our primary podcast sponsor, A Plan Rural, for supporting the show. Next week is National Pig Day, or at least it's National Pig Day in the US, but I'm going to make the most of it anyway. So uh, with that in mind, I'm pleased to say that I'll be joined by pig farmer Flavian Abiro. And on the Rural Business Focus podcast this week, I am joined by Ray Jenkins, who runs a hedge plant business in Herefordshire, to to ask him about his business story. Uh, Rural Business Focus is about the rural business story beyond agriculture. Please check it out if you haven't already, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Please see the show notes for more information and for any links mentioned today. For now, though, I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all have a great week.